Welcome to What's Up with Opera. Opera is deeply rooted in history and tradition, but we're living in a post-George Floyd, Me Too world. And now artists are rethinking the art form. So whose stories are we telling, and who gets to tell them? Can traditional opera be saved, and should it be? And what needs to happen for it to thrive? I speak with movers and shakers who have a bold new vision. Today, part two of our feature interview with renowned opera critic Anne Majette. Anne was an opera critic for the New York Times and Washington Post and helped to break some of opera's most shocking Me Too stories. And in last week's episode, she described how some of opera's biggest stars abuse their power and influence and how many performers face sexual assault and harassment behind the scenes. And I started part two of our conversation by asking about how those Me Too revelations affected her relationship with opera. Quit my job. <laughs> no, that's not the only reason I left the Washington Post. It was time to take a different step. However, I would not review anybody whom I believe to be a predator. And I could not say publicly that I wasn't, you, you can't spread gossip. So that did put me in a little bit of a weird position. Some, there were lots of memories cropping up or lots of you know minefields that I was walking through for that last year or so. But you know, my love of opera is about the experience, about the voices, the, the physicality of the voice. I'm just a complete voice junkie. And um, that never really goes away. It's funny. My husband and I will still be come down with like some YouTube thing. Listen to this. And an hour later, we're like going through 20 different iterations of whatever the aria was with all these different people. And that really never gets old for me in spite of everything, you know, in spite of the weird position women have had. Um, I, I have definitely tried hard to speak up, especially within the last five years of my job. I think in the first 10, 15 years as a critic, you're trying to run with the boys. You're trying to prove yourself. And I wasn't really thinking about the use I could make of my position. I was probably a little bit naive. I just was like, I love opera and I'm going to write about it. And it was the more and more I got into it and saw the inequities. And as these discussions began to become more public anyway, um, I became much more engaged in the last couple of years of just trying to speak up a little more and, and being a little more outraged myself at how unfairly women had been treated. But I can't, I mean, I wasn't distinctive in that. I think every critic had that same awakening in the last five years. I think these discussions have very belatedly become part of the discourse and that everybody is thinking more and having their own reckonings with, you know, the place of women and people of color. That's a whole other painful topic, the marginalization and the systemic racism throughout the classical music industry. And in opera, it's been difficult. For a long time, black men had it hardest because people didn't want to cast a black man kissing a white woman. You know, you couldn't be a romantic lead. And I say for a long time, but I think most of the significant black tenors singing today have had that experience in the last 10 or 15 years, if not more recently. It's not like this is some completely foreign, you know, long ago problem. I do want to talk about race and that we're going to get there in a moment. But before I leave Me Too, um, it really struck me that you said earlier, you know, of course, that there was this moment where everyone read the article and there's this sort of shockwaves go through the community at the revelation as to who's been involved. And then there's a, everyone drifted back into their position, is what you said. So 
What are some of the lessons we've learned from the Me Too movement? I don't know. I will amend that a little bit because right after the article was published, every single person we named was fired. And I was not expecting that at all. The, the response was so much greater than I dreamed it would be. But I think we've learned that there's a lot you can do, that we're not at the mercy of these tyrannical creative geniuses um, that 19th century trope of the brilliant artist who must have everything done for him has, I hope, been exploded because a lot of the brilliant singers are working hard and with a very businesslike attitude. And even, let us please note, Maria Callas, one of the greatest singers of the 20th century, who is famed and stereotyped for being a diva, she was an incredibly hard worker and she was generally only difficult when people weren't working as hard as she was or when she needed a break because she was so overworked. I mean, she had pulled a couple of things with cancellations, but her standard of work was unbelievable. It's not like these are these lazy people who lounge around and eat macaroons and don't feel like singing. And um, But especially if you're a woman and stand up for yourself, there's another case of a woman standing up for herself who was immediately and still pilloried, stereotyped, whatever for it. There has been a whole outgrowth of an industry founded by a woman named Tonya Sina, who unfortunately, through health issues, has not been able to continue it, but the intimacy coordinator, um, which is like a fight coordinator, which has now become a more and more recognized role in the opera house. And I think that's brilliant, just like a fight coordinator. If you're on stage waving around heavy swords, you can hurt somebody if you don't know what you're doing, so you've got to choreograph it. Well, similarly, if you're on stage lying in bed simulating sex, it's really helpful to have somebody there to choreograph you through it. And I'm not suggesting that Me Too is simply an out byproduct of people simulating sex on stage, but the fact of confronting sex on stage in theater or opera as a thing and figuring out ways to make everybody comfortable with it is a huge step toward improving things on and off the stage. Um, this is a fact of life. This is a part of our experience. Let's be respectful to everybody rather than you two are singers. Go figure it out, you know, which it doesn't lead to as good things on stage either. It's just like, it's sort of like saying, well, if you're sad, you should cry on stage to make people sad. Well, if you're a soprano and you're crying on stage, you can't sing. So nobody can hear that you're sad. So you've got to figure out how to be artificial about it in a convincing way. And bringing that same approach to physicality is very useful. That's a practical application. And I think questioning the whole nature of the hierarchy and the ways we approach the canon and the things the canon has built into us, it and the things the canon is telling us, these are all things that are now being re-examined in light of the social conversations of the last decade or more. And I think that's very healthy. The more we can get away from the idea that we have to present Verdi and Puccini exactly the way they were written, despite the fact that we live in a different society and different culture, is unfortunate and not very creative, you know? And I mean, if we were really doing original productions of things, we would have candles instead of stage lighting, and we would have thick paint on our faces instead of good stage makeup, and flats coming down and people miming the sea with blue shawls. And instead, we have all the advantages of modern technology. So let's project that into how we put the works on stage as human beings as well. I think it's so interesting what you point to, right, about those things that we traditionally we hang on to with the idea that the performers should figure it out. So we have the intimacy director, but what do you notice hasn't changed yet? Well, I mean, 
at the same time, for all I'm touting these conversations, we still have a lot of theaters, especially after the pandemic, now that we're rushing back to live performance and they want to fill the box office, we're seeing a lot of the same canonical works done in the same kinds of canonical productions, which again is a shame because the pandemic unleashed so much creativity and so many interesting things came out of it um, on an individual level. Opera singers began you know, making films and writing pieces and recording new music and all kinds of really great things happened. And um, you would love to see that harnessed in a way. And the fact that the opera field is not organic enough to harness it quickly is unfortunate. And um, some, you know, some houses are doing better than others and some are trying. Um, the Washington National Opera just did a series called Written in Stone, which was four short operas about different monuments around Washington, each given life by different composers, many composers of color, female composers, um, very diverse cast. And that just finished its run. And unfortunately, I didn't get to see it. But um, that was a fairly quick turnaround in the pandemic, you know, and, and a creative way to address how to deal with some of these things. Um, one problem I will add, and I say this also quite a bit, with new work in the traditional opera house, if you think of film, film is the modern follow-up of opera. Opera was the film of the 19th century. You made your novel into an opera and then it went around and it was popular and that's what you did. But today we have the multiplex and the art house. And if you want to see a Spielberg film, you go to the multiplex. And if you want to see, you know, a wonderful Korean auteur, you go to the art house. But in the concert hall and the opera house, that distinction doesn't exist enough. So people, a lot of opera house goers are people who really like Tosca and want to see Madame Butterfly. And so when you try to give them the art house auteur, it's just not their thing. And um, opera houses haven't figured out how to differentiate their audiences. Ideally, everybody would take an approach like Opera Philadelphia takes and find different venues for different works that fit them. And that's a way to sort of naturally find your audience. But as long as you're going to the Met, and now the Met is going to give you something new, but the Met's way of giving you something new is to try to dress it up in the Met scale. And so what ends up happening is the creative team is extremely straitjacketed by making something for the Met. You know, it's like asking a sculptor to design a float for the Rose Bowl parade. You know, you have a certain amount of scale. You can't do a whole lot with all those carnations or roses or whatever they are going into the chicken wire. And I mean, the Met is an example of a house that should have the resources to have a black box or something that where it could do different kinds of work. And when Deborah Borda took over the New York Philharmonic, not an opera house, but you can suddenly see a lot of different kinds of things happening at the New York Philharmonic, um, which they've been trying for a while. But suddenly you're seeing different kinds of work and different kinds of venue, a little, a little bit. And of course, they've renovated the house, but it's a much more creative organization than I think it was 10 years ago. It is possible to do that in these big institutions, but as long as you stay wedded to this uh old way of doing things, which comes back to what we were saying before, you are in trouble. You're listening to What's Up with Opera. If you're enjoying our conversation with Anne Majette, don't miss our upcoming episode with mezzo-soprano Janae Bridges, a fast-rising opera star who's also a leading figure in classical music's shift toward inclusion and racial justice. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe and leave us a review.
I always think a little bit that people who love traditional opera are always looking to convert. And so they always think if they just got you in the door and if they could show you the things they love about the opera, they would bring you over. I think we're always engaged in some sort of conversion therapy. And I love this idea of we could let it go and we could let people enjoy it as we enjoy other arts in different spaces. So I really appreciate that example. Also because the conversion thing then unfortunately informs a lot of the outreach, which becomes a horrible kind of colonialism where, you know, we are going to go into the inner cities and teach black and brown children that playing the violin is going to unlock their worlds and bring them all the good things in life. And I love music and I think playing the violin is very good for children, but there's a kind of messianic approach to some of this outreach that is extremely uncomfortable and extremely colonializing, partly because it's predicated on the idea that our music is inherently better and that opera and classical music are inherently better things. And, um, you know, any living art has to be in a dialogue with the world around it, in a productive two-way dialogue with the world around it. And um, let us also parenthetically note that in the Vienna of Beethoven's day, Rossini was cheap populist trash in the views of the cognoscenti. And it's like, oh my God, the audiences are all going for this Italian crap and they're not listening to the really good music and what's what's becoming of the world? You know? So the, the vocabulary of the dialogue hasn't changed that much. But, uh. Well, this is a, a good moment to talk about Black, Indigenous, people of color. That's one of the things opera is trying to move towards, understanding that for people to come to the opera house, they want to see themselves reflected on stage. And we want to make room, obviously, for all these varied artists. And you've written about how these performers are often cast in particular roles. And there's a quote I would like to share with you that's one I found that you have written that, that really, um, this one really sticks with me. I really like this one. It's a sign of how opera, as well as other areas of the classical performing arts, continues to stubbornly otherize people who don't conform to the white template that it has been the norm for so long and hasn't, in fact, come very far at all. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Um, I'm trying to dredge up the context of that quote, but I think it's absolutely true. I think that um, the effort to embrace Black singers, Brown singers, people of color, people of different Indigenous singers, has been how can we make them most like us? How can we lighten their skin? How can we um, bring them into our template? Again, singers have had it rammed down their throats for a long time that you have to look a certain way off stage. You have to present a certain way in order to get a job. The anxiety about what you wear to an audition is mind blowing. And Christine Gerke, the soprano, who is now also an artistic administrator at the Detroit Opera, recently posted within the last six months on Facebook something about I don't care what you wear to an audition, just come and sing well. I mean, obviously you don't wear jeans, you know, look decent, but I don't care what you wear. So that seems pretty basic, right? It was like she had thrown a bomb into the middle of opera Facebook. People were commenting, thank God, finally somebody's saying this. Other people were saying, what are you saying? This is going to be terrible. It was just absurd that we can't trust artists to dress themselves and that people who are trying to guide young singers don't trust them to dress themselves. And this has to do with the preservation of the tradition, but it's become widespread in conservatory that young men and women have it drummed into them that you have to follow this certain template, drummed into them by well-meaning, incredibly out-of-touch people, probably two generations older than they are. Um, so 
Is this relevant to young Black singers? Absolutely. There's this wonderful passage, and this may have been where that quote came from, um, in the book Sing for Your Life, which is about the singer Ryan Speedo Green. And he was a very troubled child who was in juvenile detention and has become a world-class opera singer in Vienna at the Met and this amazing personality. And it's a story of self-transformation that is almost incredible, but he did it. And there's this vignette. There are a lot of very telling vignettes in that book of race and the way that a black singer coming into this white temple will sort of say what they think they're supposed to say or sort of deny what they really feel because they don't want anybody in that personal space. But I was really struck by just a vignette of a black singer being told what to wear and that the dress she was picking for the audition was just not appropriate. And she liked it because it emphasized her curves. She felt good in it. And that's a cultural moment. That's not a what opera will do moment. That is older white ladies going, oh, no, no, dear, you can't wear that. And I thought that is what is wrong with opera. You know, we really don't understand that people come in different bodies and different cultures and have different standards of beauty. And let's be more embracing of all bodies. Um, there's a lot of fat activism in opera right now, too, since, of course, the fat lady has become a figure of operatic stereotype. And yet we always have to dress her as thin or try to get her to diet or whatever. And um, there are some fat singers who are aggressively holding on to their right to present in their own bodies, feel at home in their body, which you have to do to make that kind of sound and to be accepted. But they have also undergone a tremendous amount of othering of people slapping their hands away from buffet tables since they were young in an opera setting, you know, when you're with donors or whatever, don't let them see you eat because you're fat. So the mindset that goes on, and this all comes from, you know, opera is the greatest thing and there's a way to do it right. And I think as that generation dies out, I hope that that gets better. I really hope that that gets better. I think one factor in some of this that is hard to quantify, but when you think of the number of important creative artists and creative links that we lost in AIDS in all the performing fields, I think you might have found a lot of mentors and role models who were less strict about their vision of what opera needed to be. When you lost an entire generation of important gay voices, it certainly didn't help accelerate the kind of discussions in favor of diversity and whatnot. I think it set us back. And again, you can't measure that. Um, when you uh, talk about the traditions of what you wear, I just, I have to share a story with you. So when I was a young singer, I was at Marilla in 1991 at San Francisco Opera. And I will never forget that they brought representatives in from Neiman Marcus. And they selected some of the singers who were skinny model-esque to model for us the outfit you should wear when you get off the plane, when you're being picked up when you've arrived in the city, before you go to rehearsal, that this was acceptable deplaning wear, as well as, I mean, the obvious ones that singers know, which is what do you wear when you're on stage rehearsing with the orchestra, which is different than what you wear in rehearsal or first rehearsal day. But the very idea, I remember how upset, we were all very young singers and so offended that someone would tell us what to wear to get off a plane. They also brought out a whole set of gowns because every year they said that when people came to review grand finals, they always focused on what the women wear. And so there were always these, you know, very little would often be said about the singing, they said, and they were very tired of basically 
People who came to review the singers trashed the dresses and that the women didn't know how to dress. And they wanted us to do it differently. (laughs) And with that anecdote, I think you just eloquently summed up everything I was saying, because the flip side of it is that if the critic is going to trash your dress, then let's not set up the young singer as a target for some critic to be a jerk about it because he doesn't know how to hear a voice. Because let's also remember that music critics, you know, have wide ranges of expertise and a lot of them are not opera experts at all. And then they're like us opera people. But um, I, I have certainly seen a lot of colleagues who didn't really know what to write about. And so you kind of start with what you're seeing and to, the dress becomes part of that. <laughs> to, So I do hope that changes, but I will say uh, I work in a lot of young artist programs and you still hear a lot of this conversation about what to wear for auditions. As you say, the audition is a minefield. It has a lot of unwritten rules. I just feel like for singers, there are so many things that are just passed on and passed on, which is why some of these things continue to replicate because we're all taught by people who bring forward the model from the past and they, they just get indoctrinated into it. And so it becomes very hard to debunk it. Um, Exactly. And a lot of them have not had a lot of stage experience either. Some of them have, but some of them are coming to it from a completely academic background. And so they're they're even more reliant on the received wisdom and even more resistant to anything changing because they don't have a lot to compare it to. I mentioned the New Victory Hall Opera, and I confuse it with the New Victory Theater. The Victory Hall Opera in Charlottesburg, Virginia, is the company I mentioned before that is trying to come up with a singer-driven model. But they had their first um, summit. It was an all-singer summit last fall. And they made a point of not having anybody else in the room because they said, as soon as you get a critic, a conductor, a director, all the singers will fall silent and listen. And so they only had singers. And they're, they're drawing up their sort of results from it. But one of the things they said is what came out most was everybody's fear. Everybody was just so darn scared to speak their mind. Everybody was scared of the results and the consequences. This is also why Me Too can flourish, thank you very much, because if you're in a climate where everybody is afraid, then that just gives you one more thing to be afraid of and to be afraid of speaking out about. And um, just empowering singers to own their creative selves. And the pandemic did do that for a lot of people. Suddenly... You got to speak up. There was nobody to speak for you. And I did a story um, for NPR about the effect of the pandemic on singers, but I wanted it to be like a feel-good story. Just I was going to do it on five people whose careers got better. But I discovered that everybody's career got better. Everybody felt more creative, more free, more empowered, which is kind of heartbreaking. Like your entire livelihood is gone. And after the first two months of complete shock, Everybody was excited and did amazing things. I mean, that's not fair to say everybody. There were people who lost their careers completely. There were people who gave up. It was an incredibly painful time. And I have to be very, very careful not to be flip of it. But I did not imagine I would find such unanimity among the people I spoke to as I was trying to find sort of contrasting opinions. But most everybody who stayed in the business seemed to feel that there were a lot of upsides.
as you mentioned, there's always um, resistance to change. That's what we're sort of talking about here, resistance to change, especially to the deeply rooted traditions we have inside of opera. What needs to change? Well, we have to be a living, creative art form. And it's so hard to keep these opera houses going. It takes so much money. There's such an apparatus around it. You've got to raise, you've got to fundraise, you've got to give people what they want. You've got to answer to the board. The creative side goes away. I heard a public talk by Matthew Shivlock of the San Francisco Opera five, six years ago, and he was describing going on a fundraising thing to the Google offices. And he said, everybody's running around on roller skates and playing ping pong and writing on the walls and whiteboard. And he said, God, I wish I worked at a creative company. And he said, then he froze. <laughs> he was like, oh my God, if I don't work at a creative company, who does? But like, we all need to hear that story because the creativity has gone away. And when I mentioned Deborah Board of the New York Philharmonic before, she said to me years ago in an interview when she was still at Los Angeles Philharmonic that every company should put aside money for research and development, just like any big company. I mean, all of the big manufacturing you know, factories do that. Um, put aside money for experimenting, for the creative part. Like, it's not just about, shall we get a new take on Mozart's Don Giovanni? What is the creative thing we're going to... I mean, that, that is also creative. It's not not creative, but... I would really like to see that happen. And one of the things I'm concerned about with the current push toward diversity, I want more diversity. I want it to be more embracing. The way to do that is not automatically to go out and find a lot of stories about black and brown people and put them on stage. People have gotten very caught up with the idea that we have to find better stories and tell these stories. But opera is not a documentary art form. It's not, I mean, if you want to tell a good story, then make a documentary film. A lot of the operas that I love from the past, the so-called story of opera is not a narrative. It's something that's made up of the music and the emotions and the drama so that I've said this in an article, I'm paraphrasing, but I love Verdi's Trovatore. I don't love it for the plot. I may love it in spite of the plot, but the plot creates characters and emotions and situations that still do resonate after all this time. And so when we're looking for stories, it's not just about finding a good book to set. It's about figuring out the way to tell that book in music to create things that can be told in music. I mean, Hamilton is the opera for our time. Hamilton did a great job with it. It's through sung. Everybody knows the lyrics. Um, it's completely, you know, a fusion of dance and movement and visuals. It, it is an opera. There is a creative work of music theater on a contemporary stage. And as long as we're trying to make it not too dissimilar to Puccini to avoid offending the core audience, we're not going to get creative new stories. So I would like to see that better understood. And because I fear that if we just go running out to find a lot of Black stories or Black composers to tell them we're going to have a lot of work nobody's doing, or you run into the thing that's going on with the Emmett Till opera that's happening right now, where it's a white librettist and a Black composer and a Black conductor and a mainly Black cast, but people heard it was a white librettist and suddenly there's a whole backlash on social media because she's centering her experience as a white person in this quintessentially Black story. And the Black composer is saying, we've been working on this for five years. It's not like, I mean, it sort of infantilizes the entire Black production team and artistic team that's a part of this um, project. And I have not read the libretto. I, I don't know. But I do trust that the many intelligent Black adults who are working on it have not been bamboozled by one single white lady who's inflicting her view on them. 
obviously maybe this isn't the story that we need to hear right now, but there is a pitfall with, you know, finding the black story and who gets to tell whose story and what, and it's completely distracting from the mission of trying to have effective music theater on the stage. So what needs to change? More creativity and a better understanding of what opera is, as opposed to a sort of knee-jerk reaction by doing the checklist things we think are supposed to change things. We need a lot of vision, a lot of good leadership, um, a lot of creative input from different sources, and some real thought and, uh, and creative gestation as well. I would love to see something significant be growing in five years, and that's not going to happen by a lot of knee-jerk reactions now, which I will immediately quantify by saying, hire all the Black people now. Yes, I really want to see many, many more Black people in positions of power, creative advisors, administrators running companies on the stage. Absolutely, yes. And let's all, you know, work together with everybody. I will say a really wonderful, diverse project that came out of the pandemic was the Messiah that they did with the Toronto Symphony and a theater company in Canada, you must know. Against the Grain. Against the Grain, yes, where they had lots of indigenous singers and singers of different cultures bringing their own take to each aria of the Messiah. It was a really powerful, exciting, wonderful project that was completely true to handle and everybody got to put their own spin on it. And it was so meaningful to think about what these things mean to us today. It opened up an essential dialogue. People have always said the art form is dying. I feel like every generation for opera, we're always sounding the death knell of opera, uh, but it doesn't die. It continues to live and it finds new passionate fans and it is evolving. What's giving you hope? Bottom line is that I just love opera. I, I am still excited when I hear opera. I know I'm not the only one. I smile when I encounter past generations having the opera is dying discussion. One of my favorites is the poet Metastasio, who's talking in like 1760 and saying, you know, oh, these new generation can't sing at all. What's become of the old ways? And, you know, Mozart hadn't even started really getting into the swing of things when they're talking about how opera is completely dead. So, you know, I, I still look back to the 50s and 60s as the golden age that sort of stuck as the golden age for a couple generations. But, you know, we all wring our hands about everything. It's, you know, 60 and 70 year olds wring their hands about anything that 20 and 30 year olds do. The point is for 20 and 30 year olds to really be able to make it their own. And I really hope they do because opera is so overdue for a real revitalization. And you can see bits of it happening everywhere. And if we could just loosen our stranglehold on these large institutions and the way things must be done and find ways to soften it up a little bit. Um, there's so much creativity and so much energy out there that you can't talk to a lot of young singers and composers and not have hope for the future. You know, there's just a lot of good people are out there. Thank you so much for your time today, Anne, and for this broad perspective and your excitement and passion for the art form. And despite all of our trials and tribulations, to see what's really magical still about this art form and why it should continue on. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Anne Majette is a classical music critic. What's Up With Opera is a podcast by Pacific Opera Victoria. It's produced by me, Rebecca Haas, along with Denise Ball and Jennifer Van Evra. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, write us a review and share. And join me for our next episode when I'll talk with Taya Kasahara, 
a non-binary, interdisciplinary performer and co-founder of Amplified Opera. <laughs>